Welcome to the first podcast for the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Psychiatry. I'm Duncan Jarvis and I produce the podcast for the BMJ Group. JNNP has a new editor, Matthew Kiernan. Matthew is a professor of neurology based at the Prince of Wales Hospital and the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. In this first podcast, Matthew's going to let us know a bit about his plans for the journal. He'll also interview Marie de Hoog from the National MS Centre in Belgium about her paper that appears in JNNP this month. So, Matthew, how does it feel to take over as the JNNP editor? I'm extremely proud to have uh, been appointed as the incoming editor for the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Psychiatry particularly given the fact that I'll be the uh, first non-British editor of the journal. And my goals really are to build on the great traditions of the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Psychiatry. How did you come to work as a neurologist? My interest in neurology was generated really through the decade of the brain in the 1990s when I was training in medicine. And really, the brain has always been mysterious. Most of the other organs in the human body have been defined and worked out to the smallest intricacies, but the brain is really an unfathomable area controlling everything we do. And it was such a wide open field and the various technologies were starting to get into place, including you know, understanding of genetics, greater structural imaging with magnetic resonance imaging. And it really just seems such an exciting area to go into. As you said, it's an exciting area and there's a lot going on. Is this going to be reflected in the journal? Do you plan to make any changes? Well, I think I really wanted to build on the traditions of the journal itself, and we're, in, we're instigating a number of changes uh, gradually over time. And the first thing that, that readers will see is that we've created a new cover for the journal, and we've uh, put on a, an illustration from the Dutch artist, M.C. Escher, which uh, his work is rind. He's peeled back, like peeling back an orange, the face and head of a person, and this was inspired by H.G. Wells's novel, The Invisible Man, and it's really akin to the role of the modern-day neuroscientist who's bringing in the, the realms of physiology, chemistry, biological realms, as well as our sort of social and emotional selves, and it really brings in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, and psychiatry themselves. Other things that we're trying to do is broaden the readership of the journal. Although it's clearly got a strong tradition in Europe, we're keen to introduce more readers to JNMP throughout Asia and America. And to do this, we're going to incorporate opinion pieces and controversies from the key opinion leaders in those countries. In addition to increasing the readership, we aim to widen the editorial scope of JNMP and we'll have editorial representation spanning from London through Asia, the Americas and down to Australia. So what we can clearly say is the sun will never set on the JNNP. Other initiatives that we'll be undertaking in terms of increasing the learning and teaching capabilities of the journal will be to launch a neurology masterclass series, which will be delivered by a number of world experts and will be available through our website portals. In addition to JNNP, we'll be working closely with our companion journal, Practical Neurology, in consult with its editor, Charles Warlow. And rather than simply just chasing impact factors, our concern is going to be impact itself. We're also hoping to theme our issues and give greater focus to different neurological and neurosurgical diseases, particularly multiple sclerosis, and build, build issues around these themes. One of the other key uh, 
moves forward for the journal has been the introduction of podcasts, and so we hope to highlight breakthrough manuscripts which are being published each month in JNNP. Okay, well, as one of the uh, new developments for the journal, we're highlighting manuscripts that have been uh, accepted and asking the authors to talk about them through podcasts. And we're very uh, pleased to include this issue's editor's choice. So this is a manuscript that's been written and co-authored by Marie de Hooge, a neurologist from the National MS Centre based in Belgium. And her manuscript is on the long-term effects of childbirth in MS. So I'd like to welcome Marie. And perhaps, Marie, could you give us a bit of a background to your study and its implications? What we did is we followed about 330 women with MS for a longer term. They were attending our MS center, and we had the occasion to have quite a lot of data on their MS course and as well on the dates of the birth of their children. And we used as the endpoint, we used the time to reach EDSS 6 from onset of MS, which means that the time these patients need to handle, to use a cane uh, for walking. And if we look at this endpoint, we found a difference in the time in the different groups of women, whether they had children or not, or whether they had children before or after the start of MS. And we actually found a difference of seven until ten years between the women who were pregnant after their MS began and women who were not pregnant after their MS began and in favor of the women who had children born after onset of MS. The findings of the longer time until EDSS 6 was still statistically significant when we corrected for age at onset. And then we found the largest difference between the group having had children only after the onset of MS versus the group of women with no children at all. This was really remarkable and it, we could conclude that there was a 39% difference in the risk of progressing to EDSS 6 in women whose children were born after symptoms of MS versus the women with no children at all. And this was taking to account the age at which symptoms of MS began. Just following this up, but basically your study has identified that there seems to be a more benign course associated with childbirth in women with multiple sclerosis. And in your manuscript, you raise a number of possibilities for why this may be so. And right. one of the issues you raise is the role of hormones. Would you right. like to expand on that a little bit? We know from the short-term effects of uh, pregnancy on MS, we know that there is really a decrease in relapse rate during pregnancy, certainly the second and the third trimester, and after delivery, there is an increased relapse rate. So from these short-term pregnancy data, we know there is a clear influence of sex hormones on the relapse rate in MS. What we do not know is there may be also a longer-term effect of these sex hormones on the course of MS. This could be due to the influence of hormones on a strategic time point. 
let's say, in the beginning of the disease or even when the disease has not manifested itself clinically. But then at that time, at that strategic time, these hormones could have a delaying effect on progression of MS. But these findings need to be clarified. We, we don't know at this time whether these hormones really are the cause of the more benign cause in women with MS who are having children. We know from animal studies that certainly sex hormones have immunomodulatory effects. We also know that they seem to decrease sometimes the damage in EAE model, but this needs to be studied further. And as you mentioned in your manuscript, that during pregnancy, women often adopt a much healthier lifestyle. Right. They, they eat better, they look after their indoor and outdoor activities and exercise. Right. What role do you think these issues, lifestyle-related issues, may be having on the results of your study? Right. This is an important point which we, we do not know, but maybe the changing of the lifestyle could also have an influence on the course of MS. And this is a very interesting point since we know that smoking, maybe also the vitamin D levels, and maybe also physical activity or exercises could have some influences on the MS course. But this needs to be further studied. So we don't know at this time whether this could be an explanation, but it's certainly one of the candidates also. And in, in terms of the selection of patients, do you think that in general the healthier patients are the ones who actually become pregnant? So is there a bias in the, in the structure of the study itself? That's an important point. We cannot really exclude that completely, and that's a weakness. But since we found that also women who first got pregnant, who first had children and then got MS, at the time they choose to have children, there were not any clinical signs of multiple sclerosis. So we suppose that for these patients, we, this bias has not played. And also in this group, we found a beneficial effect of childbirth on the course of MS. I think the point of the, the group that, had first that was first pregnant and then got MS, that's an underscoring that this bias may, is probably not uh, playing for all the patients. So, so what do you think the, are the key implications of your study? So as, a, as an MS neurologist practicing in the National Centre in Belgium, when a patient comes up to you and asks, is it, should they become pregnant or is it dangerous, what would be your um, advice to these patients? Okay. I think the main point is we can tell that there is no increased risk of progression at the long term if MS patients have pregnancies, have children. There seems to be even a beneficial effect, which needs to be further studied. But I think the main point is that your disease will not have a more rapid evolution or will not progress more if you have children. That's actually the most important point, and I think the... What we found is um, rising more questions uh, than answers because uh, what could explain this long-term effect needs to be studied. Uh, we, we need to find out if the sex hormones really have this effect on a strategic time point. Do they really lead to a delaying of the progression of disease or are these lifestyle factors important? And uh, this is, I think, we can tell right now about these findings.
Yeah, well, clearly uh, the results of your study are important and uh, are, are, are good news, really, for MS patients considering pregnancy. Right, right, a good point, but I think we should not exaggerate that and um, now stimulate our patients <laughs> to get pregnant. Huh? <laughs> but I, I think the main message is that we, we find in these groups, we find some differences, and they are statistically really different, and they suggest a beneficial effect on the course of MS and, and um, more specifically on the time to reach EDSS 6. But I, I think we have to be careful to, to advise our patients now to get pregnant and to, to see this as a treatment of MS. Uh, this wouldn't be useful because this is statistical findings, these studies, and, and they do not tell um, how the evolution of the individual patient will be. And still we see that a lot of patients after 18 years of follow-up, uh, a mean time of 18 years of follow-up, that these patients uh, do progress and they, they, they reach EDSS 6. I think that's an important point. But, of course, it's, it's also important that we find these data because clearly there, there might something be there also to, to influence in lifestyle, in hormonal treatments that uh, could be useful for MS patients. Well, I think that's a very good summary so the manuscript by Marie and her co-authors titled The Long-Term Effects of Childbirth in MS has been chosen as the editor's choice for JNNP and will be freely downloadable through the JNNP website, jnnp.bmj.com. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.